Hello and welcome to Eating Between the Lines. I am your host, Therese Martinez, and I am so happy to have you here. If you want to untangle yourself from diet culture conditioning and get appropriate, actionable options to nourish your unique life and body, I'm going to dive deep into the nuanced spectrum of health to help you figure out what to prioritize in your journey without getting trapped in the extreme ideology of health optimization or total complacency. I am here to help you apply the science effectively, not rigidly, and get you feeling better in your body and mind. Here is how to eat between the lines. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Eating Between the Lines. I am your host, Therese Martinez, and I am looking forward to talking about digestion today. This is such an important topic. I mean, I honestly don't care if you have digestive issues or not. Like knowing how your digestive system works and why it is important is relevant to us all. And I would be curious if you were to not come away with some considerations from this podcast today around how to improve your digestion and overall gut health, and also maybe learn about some things that could be worked on, while also maybe considering things that you are doing that are unhelpful or unnecessary, honestly, for your digestive health. So I've been, I have found that lately I've just been a little bit more passionate around getting some of the understanding with the functionality of the digestive system out because of the confusion out there and because of the many, many, many people suffering with their digestive health. And I want to spend some time today talking about root issues around some symptom pictures and maybe give you some tools to utilize to just trial and see if they work while also 100% recommending to always talk to your healthcare practitioner before, you know, starting anything like supplements or other protocols and such too. I just want these seeds to be planted and maybe be a topic of conversation with your healthcare provider. So when we're thinking about digestion and digestive health, a lot of times I will have patients come in We'll talk about bowel movements, regularity of bowel movements, right? So is it one time a day, two times a day? I use this chart called the Bristol stool chart, and we can see it's on a scale from one to seven of varying different types of poop and how it looks. So pebbles to dry, solid, to smooth solid to more soft and then, you know, into a liquid state. And this is really helpful to look at you guys. I have a lot of people that have no idea. Like they look at the chart and have no idea what their poop actually looks like. And it is 
informative. It can tell you a lot about what's going on inside of your body. And so I look at the bowel movement regularity, Bristol stool chart, and then additionally go through symptom pictures. So bloating is one that I hear a lot. And this ranges. It ranges from feeling bloated after very specific foods, after specific meals. It can happen chronically throughout the whole day. It can also relate to stress sometimes. I also get folks concerned about constipation or diarrhea and not really knowing if they have constipation sometimes and thinking that having a bowel movement every few days may be normal for them. And I'm not here to kind of talk about what's totally normal and what's not. Everybody has unique considerations. And I'm also here to say that Many times it can be great if we can try to get a bowel movement a day at least. And so I like to examine what's really going on. And we talk, we talk about this in a top-down fashion, really understanding the different phases of digestion. And other considerations too. I mean, there's IBS, there's IBD, so irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, which is kind of this like umbrella term for digestive distress. If you've been diagnosed with it, you know that it is not wildly helpful <laughs> to have that diagnosis. Then there's also IBD, which is conditions that are have a little bit more of a, a tangible diagnosis like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And so there can be just a range, a range of conditions going on in that di digestive tract. And so today I want to break this down top to bottom so that you can kind of understand where there may be more problems for you and just consider types of interventions that may be more or less beneficial. I will say 100% recommend not doing this on your own. I want to reiterate that. Do not do these interventions on your own. It just reminds me of how I hear in different podcasts, like this supplement can help with this and this supplement helps with that. And it's like people, myself included, I remember buying like 17 supplements when my skin was really bad and just like crossing my fingers and hoping for the best versus actually getting support that is methodical and evaluates your unique self and body. So these are just considerations to have and reflect on and then potentially, you know, bring up to your healthcare provider. So if we're looking at digestion and this process of digestion, we've got different phases and each phase has its purpose. So we have the cephalic phase, which is kind of the looking at food, starting to salivate, smelling food, getting getting some action going in the mouth. And then we have the gastric phase, which is all the action that happens in the stomach. And then we have the intestinal phase, which is what happens in the intestinal tract, small, large, and colon. And so when we break down these different phases of digestion, we can see what the different roles are, and then where things may go awry. And part of what is a little tricky with identification of these things is that sometimes it's kind of hard to pinpoint because symptoms can be honestly very similar, right? So if I have maybe constipation, 
there are a handful of reasons that I may not be able to regularly go to the bathroom. But sometimes the reason starts way up top in the cephalic phase or the gastric phase. But sometimes it may be more related to what's going on in my large intestine. And so it's helpful, again, to just sort of see that there can be variability with the solutions. But sometimes we just only give credit to one area based off of what we hear on social media or podcasts or things like that. So this is why having someone that can evaluate that top to bottom can be beneficial and why certain interventions can help you identify maybe where the discrepancies are with your own digestion. So kind of, again, that methodical approach. So if we consider the beginning of digestion in the cephalic phase, we have different enzymes that are produced when we start salivating. And these break down and help break down starches, fats, and sometimes a little bit of protein. And the other consideration, the really big one, is how we chew our food. So it is really important to chew food thoroughly, especially if you have digestive distress. Sometimes if we don't chew food thoroughly and we have issues downstream, we have a harder time breaking food down, which can lead to you know, some of those conditions mentioned earlier, but it can also lead to poor nutrient absorption and then systemic considerations of manifestations of issues. And so chewing your food thoroughly is actually very important. But in addition to that, we have enzymes that are produced to start breaking these foods down. As we swallow the food, this is the bolus of food, it goes into the stomach and this starts the gastric phase. So with the gastric phase, We have a whole handful of things that are happening. I think a lot of people consider, you know, the stomach to be a huge part of breaking down food because of the acidity, but we also have different, again, enzymes that are produced to additionally help with some of that breakdown of food. So we have pepsin that helps with the breakdown of protein into peptides. Sometimes low levels of pepsin can often equal low levels of HCL, which is kind of what helps create that acidity in the stomach. And that can lead to conditions like GERD, gastroesophageal reflux. So like acid reflux, basically. With low levels of acid in the stomach, we see a lot of downstream effects. So we can have more bloating and gas, nausea, diarrhea, burping, different types of vitamin and mineral deficiencies like B12 or magnesium and protein. So it's really important that we have an appropriate level of uh, acidity and hydrochloric acid in the stomach so that we can break down food appropriately in addition to how it works well with pepsin. And we also consider the fact that there can be certain levels of overgrowth in the stomach that can create problems as well. So we can have things like H. pylori, which can absolutely impact the stomach in terms of how acidic it is. And that can, again, lead to that cascade of of effects. So the stomach's function is to disinfect kill bacteria, parasites, and it also activates pepsin for protein digestion. 
really, really, really important. Then as this bolus of food moves through the digestive tract, this is now called chyme, C-H-Y-M-E, and this goes into the small intestine. And so in the small intestine, what we're looking at here is primarily absorption of nutrients. So we have these finger-like microvilli along the intestinal tract that essentially increase the surface area and then help us to have a better ability to absorb nutrients. I mean, we've got millions of villi and microvilli working here. (laughs) This is where we also have something called secretin. And secretin stimulates the pancreas to release bicarbonate and pancreatic juice, which neutralizes the chyme and also has enzymes that break down carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So the pancreas now gets activated a little bit more to to send in some enzymes. We also have the gallbladder that contributes bile and bile helps break down and transport fat. And so These are important to note because if we're already tracking the contributions of the body to the breakdown of food in the digestive tract, what do we have so far? We have the the enzymes in the mouth and we have how well you're chewing. We also have the acid in the stomach. So absolutely needing appropriate acidity and appropriate volume of gastric juice, essentially, and appropriate pepsin production. We now have additional pancreatic enzymes that contribute into the small intestine. And I just, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I do want to clarify, like, this is a very complex system and I am kind of doing my best to simplify it as best that I can to make it a little bit more digestible. So just please recognize that there is a lot more to it, but these are kind of the important things to note based off of what I'm trying to encourage you guys to, to reflect on your own self. So at this point we have the pancreas that has contributed some of the enzymes. So we have proteases that help break down protein. We have pancreatic alpha amylase that helps break down starch. We have pancreatic lipase that helps break down fat in addition to a handful of other different enzymes. So the bulk of protein digestion is actually in the small intestine by proteases. So when we have deficiency here, we can get malabsorption, we can get indigestion, constipation, sometimes weakness. And so really important to be producing a sufficient amount of those enzymes. And then with lipase, this helps break down triglycerides. It helps with, again, breakdown of fat in general. So deficiency with lipase enzymes can lead to abdominal pain, steatorrhea, weight loss, vitamin deficiency. Uh, it's really, really important that we have appropriate breakdown of fat because we need fat for fat-soluble vitamins. So very important to consider that. 
And deficiency in amylase can lead to also gas and diarrhea and also bacterial overgrowth, which I'll kind of talk about in a second. But when we have a lot of starches going through the system that are not very well broken down, when we haven't really utilized a lot of the nutrients, they can go and they can kind of wreak havoc a little bit with the interaction of the bacteria throughout our digestive tract. So really important to kind of recognize that. I want to also note that within the small intestine, what can lead to some additional issues with bloating and constipation and diarrhea downstream is something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And this is where we have too many bacteria in our small intestine. It is normal to have bacteria all throughout our digestive tract. The bulk of the bacteria are going to be in the large intestine. And so if we have too many bacteria in the small intestine, it can be unfavorable to our health because we can manifest these symptoms like bloating and indigestion in a handful of ways. And so We want to go through a protocol again with a professional that can help with mobilization of those bacteria into their proper places with an attempt to repopulate the gut microbiome with the appropriate balance and diversity in the places that we prefer. So very important to understand that too. Now, if we continue into the large intestine, this is where we have a lot of interaction with the fibers of our intake and not just fibers, but again, simplistically speaking, this is where our intestinal tract interacts with our non-digestible foods. Fibers are definitely one of them and very important. So this is where the leftover chyme is. This is fibers, bile, water, sloughed off cells rolling through the large intestine. And as I mentioned before, the large intestine has trillions of bacteria. It's actually got like a whole ecosystem down there. And it is really, really important for our overall health to maintain a well-functioning ecosystem. And I'm going to definitely get into a whole gut microbiome podcast at some point, but to put it simply, if we think about the health of our gut in terms of our microbiome in the large intestine, we want to consider the amount of bacteria, the diversity of bacteria, and how much of the preferred bacteria to the not preferred bacteria we have. I also like to kind of note that the health of the intestinal lining is also really important. So it's not necessarily exclusive to the bacteria, but in addition to, because the bacteria do make up a part of the lining, but it can, you can have different targeted interventions to support the health of your digestive tract lining. So that is part of gut health to me as well. So if we are thinking about the bacteria in our digestive tract, the function of these bacteria and how they are interacting with this leftover chyme that's kind of rolling through, they will be fermenting 
these fibers. So if you think about the different types of food you consume that have fibers or maybe even some other polyphenols, plant nutrients and such, they can go down all the way down to the large intestine and essentially feed the bacteria. These are called prebiotics. So prebiotics help the bacteria thrive. Now, not all prebiotics are created equal, and there are some types of bacteria that really thrive off of certain foods that may not be great for our health. And there are other bacteria that really love other types of foods that may be more nutrient dense and more beneficial. And if you think about also, you know, just a low intake of fiber in general, we are now starving a lot of the bacteria and what these bacteria do. I mean, so much, (laughs) but a huge consideration of why they are so important is because of what they produce when they have this nourishment. So the postbiotics are things like butyrate and short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids serve as energy for cells lining the large intestine, and the butyrate is a fuel source for the colon and mitigates inflammatory responses. So butyrate is like a powerhouse in terms of mitigating inflammation that can start in the digestive tract and also then go out systemically. And so whether you manifest issues within the digestive tract or again, systemically, butyrate can actually play a huge role in pulling some of that down. And so if you just back it up, like, okay, so how do we get butyrate? Oh, it's a postbiotic. Okay. From these bacteria, how do we make sure these bacteria thrive? Oh, from these fibers and these nutrients. Okay, great. How do we get those? We eat them from here, here, and here, or consume them in this way, right? So granted, again, can be a little bit more complicated than that, but it's something to consider when you are thinking about your overall intake and how you can promote better gut health. So something else to consider too, we have postbiotics that are not beneficial. So there's something called endotoxin. And when we get too much endotoxin within the digestive tract, and when we also have a potentiality of the tight junctions in our gut lining being a little low in their integrity, then we can have this endotoxin that can seep through and really wreak havoc systemically in our body. So we want to make sure we are promoting the health of those health of those bacteria that we want and also kind of looking at ways that we can mitigate that endotoxin, which I will talk in about more in a future podcast for sure. If we pull back and just think about this a little bit in summary fashion, We have these three phases of digestion. We've got the cephalic phase, the gastric phase, and the intestinal phase, the ones that I've talked about today. And we have roles that the body plays to help promote breakdown of food and absorption of nutrients. If we think about where things go awry, we can kind of track down what types of interventions to make. So if we have manifestations of say constipation or diarrhea or bloating. I mean, it's a lot, but either all of them or just one, perhaps a person can go all the way back to the top and just make sure you're consuming and chewing your food thoroughly. 
A lot of people don't like to hear that, like, that's the solution, but you would not believe how many times that has actually played a role in addition to some other things with the nutrient absorption and digestive well-being of my patients. Then we go into the stomach. Okay, what's the acidity like in the stomach? And would it help to take a digestive enzyme? And digestive enzymes would be prized of many of the enzymes that I mentioned. In addition to sometimes they have HCL and sometimes they also have bile, often in the form of ox bile. So what I do sometimes with patients is I choose a digestive enzyme that does not have HCL and it does not have ox bile. And then I see how the patient reacts. So then we can kind of see, okay, was this an enzyme production issue? I mean, sometimes it can also trickle down into the small intestine and impact the digestion down there too. But if they have symptom relief without the HCL, without the ox bile, then we can kind of know, okay, maybe this was a little bit more of an enzyme production issue. How can we support the pancreas? How can we support the production of these enzymes in other ways? And then additionally, if they don't get relief, perhaps we can bring in a different type of digestive enzyme and see what the effects are with the individual with something like HCL or ox bile. I like to really limit the variables. I think it's really important to limit variables when you are working with trial and error and interventions with things. Uh, it's already really hard to limit variables when it comes to nutrition in the first place. So we can then kind of see, does this help remedy? Maybe we even isolate it and someone can just take a little bit more ox bile. I think it's also really important to evaluate the symptom pictures of the patients, right? So if a person consumes a really high fat meal and then has digestive distress, okay, maybe that's more of an indication that it might be something along the lines of lipase or bile production. If it's something more along the lines of a high protein or high, like high starch type of meal, maybe it's a different type of enzyme production. And again, this is all kind of speculation and, and consideration taken for the, the person on a whole. And so it's an experiment. So then we also can then look at the symptoms otherwise. So are they having something happen after a very particular meal? And is there a remedy and symptoms after taking something like a digestive enzyme? Are they having symptoms like bloating after a very particular meal? Maybe this meal is comprised of high FODMAP foods. So certain foods like Brussels sprouts, broccoli, onion, garlic, these foods are highly associated with aggravation of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And if that's the case, then maybe we trial a few other types of interventions around small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in terms of omitting some of these foods and seeing if there is aggravation when these foods are taken out. Maybe there can also be support in other ways that we can try to see how to add nutrients in without aggravating the small intestine and, and creating that bloating too. But there is a protocol around SIBO and there can also be tests done to, to see if a person has it. So I kind of figure out some of the trial and error to the extent that I can, and then usually guide a person to get formally tested and then run them through an actual protocol to help. Now, there can also be issues with constipation and diarrhea. And what we look at here is, okay, is this related to 
again, that that breakdown up in the the stomach. Is this related to poor enzyme or bile production and seeing if we, if any of those interventions also help with the digestion? If we're talking about constipation, we also have to consider how a body works in terms of its motor motility complex. And so essentially the peristalsis movement that happens through the digestive tract, the kind of movement, it kind of looks like an inchworm almost where the, there's this kind of almost like contraction within the digestive system to move the bolus of food along. And there are people that have sluggish bowels and that they don't have great mobilization of the bolus of food. And so certain things that can help with this can be hydration. It can be movement. They can also be smaller meals. And there can be considerations around other interventions that can just help constipation in general, where we're looking at things like fiber intake. So, you know, constipation can be related to not enough um, insoluble fiber and insoluble fiber will kind of help increase the weight and size of the stool and soften it. In contrast, like diarrhea is a little bit more soluble fiber based. And so soluble fiber examples would be oatmeal, sweet potato, asparagus, beets, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and insoluble would be like blackberries, blueberries, cauliflower, cucumber, raspberry spinach. Honestly, I've looked at like soluble and insoluble fiber lists so much, and it can feel kind of hard to like identify true commonalities in either. And so I generally just look at a list and or just work on diversification of intake. I mean, that's really a huge, huge part of promoting health in general, right? Like if we can work on diversifying intake, we can then work on feeding a diverse amount of bacteria. We can also then improve regulation of our digestion. We can then also ensure more micronutrient intake and absorption and improve health overall in that sense. So I wouldn't say get too caught up in insoluble and soluble, but it might be worth if worth it if you are struggling with constipation or diarrhea regularly too. Take a look at uh, and look up lists there. So considerations with other interventions, we can also take a look at things like probiotics. Not all probiotics are created equal, but sometimes I find them to be pretty helpful in kind of catalyzing the foundation of a healthy gut microbiome. So probiotics are like packaged bacteria, right? So we are ingesting bacteria and hoping that it's they set up camp in the large intestine. And then our job is to feed them, right? So if we're kind of struggling with the diversity of bacteria, with the amount of bacteria, maybe we just went through a round of antibiotics, or maybe we've gone through a bunch of rounds, or maybe our diet just hasn't been stellar for a long time. Probiotics can help get things rolling. They can also sometimes help when we are trying to troubleshoot the areas of 
intervention needs, right? So maybe we are curious on the state of the person's bacterial health. It's really hard to be super objective evaluating someone's gut microbiome. I would say there's a lot of limitations with the tests out there. And so sometimes if we have different interventions like this, we can do just some trial and error and see. So probiotics can be beneficial. Not all are created equal. Some people have very specific needs and, uh, and they can do very specific things for individuals too. Prebiotics, again, just working on feeding that bacteria with healthful foods. So also foods like fermented foods can be beneficial. They've got pre and probiotics and the ones that are refrigerated. So not the jarred shelf stable sauerkraut and pickles. I mean, you can eat those for many other reasons, but they will not have the same nutrient profile in terms of the, the live cultures. And so the Probiotics and prebiotics will be found in things like refrigerated sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, and essentially anything that a person ferments and refrigerates. So other things that I believe to be very overlooked would be getting a squatty potty if a person has constipation. Honestly, even if you don't, I think squatty potties are incredible and giving yourself some time to have an appropriate bowel movement. I know many people that I have worked with will just kind of feel like they should just feel the urge, go to the bathroom, get it done. There are some people that sit there for a really long time. And I think that there is a happy medium in terms of the healthy digestive tract, but definitely give yourself some relaxation time when you need to. And squatty potties are just amazing in how they sort of shape your colon to be a little bit more promoting of a thorough and a sufficient bowel movement. Trying to eat in a state of low stress, right? Not always eating on the go, not always like inhaling your food. This is really, really helpful and beneficial when we are considering that first phase and can be also beneficial when we, when we look throughout the whole digestive system in terms of what stress does and the stress impact on the state of our gut health. I mean, that's something I didn't really even get to today, but stress has a massive impact on how we digest foods. And so that can be another type of intervention and one that I definitely look at with patients patients and kind of make connections. There is a app called the Nerva app, N-E-R-V-A, and it's all about stimulating your vagus nerve. So there is a huge gut brain connection um, through this nerve. And if we can work on activating it a little bit more, it kind of activates the parasympathetic nervous system and helps us kind of chill out. And again, allows the gut to do its job a little bit more efficiently versus being in that state of stress. There are other mechanisms downstream that stress also impacts in terms of bacterial balance and uh, conditions around nutrient absorption, things like that. But very, very, very helpful. I have had loads of patients try the Nerva app with tons of success. So highly, highly recommend it. I know it seems kind of weird for many folks. It's like, we talk about chewing food thoroughly. We talk about mindful eating. We talk about slowing down your eating. We talk about the squatty potty, utilizing Nerva. And it's like those things, just those things can make a world of a difference when it comes to having better bowel movements. 
So I hope that this was pretty helpful. I am happy to answer any questions. I know this, like to me, this felt like such a speed through when it comes to digestive health, but I hope that I provided action items that feel doable to at least start reflecting and considering and talking to your healthcare practitioner and, you know, get yourself thinking about your own digestive health and maybe considerations around dietary changes that may be more helpful or other types of interventions that, again, you can talk to a professional about to get a better evaluation so that you're not just reaching and grasping for solutions. So... Let me know what y'all think and I will catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this information valuable, please share this episode and give it a review. They truly help a ton. If you want additional support and information, you can head over to my website, teresemartinezrd.com, where you can snag my free guide on how to improve your hunger signals, get on my email list for regular juicy content, or apply for the next round of my signature program, Restoring Nutrition Intuition. Otherwise, Instagram at Therese Martinez RD or my Facebook group, Fed Fit and Fad Free Nutrition with Therese are always places for more content and support. Until next time.